You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people, and that means that when we read it, we are hearing God speak to us. This morning, we'll be reading Genesis chapter 32 and 33. We'll be reading from the CSB version. I'd encourage you all to follow along in your own Bibles, and the passage will also be on the screen. Jacob went on his way, and God's angels met him. When he saw them... Jacob said, This is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the territory of Edom. He commanded them, You are to say to my lord Esau, This is what your servant Jacob says. I have been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female slaves. I have sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with the flocks, herds, and camels. He thought, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. Then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, go back to your land and to your family and I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two camps. Please rescue me from my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers, and their children. You have said, I will cause you to prosper. And I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. He spent the night there and took part of what he had brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He entrusted them to his slaves as separate herds and said to them, Go on ahead of me and leave some distance between the herds. And he told the first one, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong to? Where are you going? And whose animals are these ahead of you? Then tell him, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and look, he is behind us. He also told the second one, the third, and everyone who was walking behind the animals, say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You are also to say, look, 
your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I want to appease Esau with the gift that is going ahead of me. After that, I can face him, and perhaps he will forgive me. So the gift was sent on ahead of him while he remained in the camp that night. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two slave women, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, along with all his possessions. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? the man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please, tell me your name. But he answered, Why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. That is why, still today, the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket, because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two slave women. He put the slaves and their children first, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Then they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he asked, Who are these with you? He answered, The children God has graciously given your servant. Then the slaves and their children approached him and bowed down. Leah and her children also approached and bowed down, and then Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. So Esau said, What do you mean by this whole procession I met? To find favour with you, my lord, he answered. I have enough, my brother, Esau replied. Keep what you have. But Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favour with you, take this gift from me. For indeed, I have seen your face, and it is like seeing God's face, since you have accepted me. Please take my present that was brought to you, because God has been gracious to me, and I have everything I need. So Jacob urged him until he accepted. Then Esau said, Let's move on, and I'll go ahead of you. Jacob replied, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and I have nursing flocks and herds. If they are driven hard for one day, the whole herd will die. 
Let my Lord go ahead of his servant. I will continue on slowly, at a pace suited to the livestock and the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, Let me leave some of my people with you. But he replied, Why do that? Please indulge me, my Lord. That day Esau started on his way back to Seir, but Jacob went to Succoth. He built a house for himself and shelters for his livestock. That is why the place was called Succoth. After Jacob came from Paden Aram, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. Uh, God, we, we know that your word in Genesis is powerful and important. It raises a whole range of issues that connect with our lives, many of which are very painful. Uh, but you are a God of grace who offers us grace over and over and over again. Gosh, in the life, life of Jacob, we see someone who we are all too alike. Um, but someone who receives your forgiveness and your healing and your restoration. Do that for us as well as we hear your word this day. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, there's a lot of us here today, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a guess. Uh, I'm going to guess, quite sadly, that I think most of us here are estranged from someone. I'm going to take a guess that most of us are estranged from someone. Uh, it could be a friend, a sibling, a parent, a child, a colleague, or even another Christian Gosh, it could even be someone here in our own church family. Most of us, by now I'm suspecting, will have had some sort of relational breakdown with someone in life. And if you have, it's actually really hard to reconcile, isn't it? It's hard to have that conversation. It's hard to look at that other person in the face. And it's even harder when we know that in some part, we're the ones who contributed to that breakdown. We bear some fault for that conflict, and deep down, in the quietness of our hearts, we wish that we could take it all back. As a church, we've talked about this this year, haven't we? We commit to repentance, we pursue reconciliation, and we long for restoration. But it's not always so straightforward, is it? It can, take, it can be a very long time between each of those steps of repentance, reconciliation, and restoration. I mean, we might want to repent, but we feel really awkward. We might feel like, gosh, it's been too long, and too much time has passed. And even if I repented, the other person might not want to forgive me. I mean, it takes two people to reconcile, and I just don't know what they'll say. And even if we could be reconciled, there are some sins in life that are so damaging, so hurtful, that the relationship just can't be restored. In fact, there are even cases where the relationship shouldn't be restored. And no matter how you look at it, all these broken relationships, they're a picture of what's wrong with our world, aren't they? Just honestly, in, in the quietness of your hearts this moment, who are you estranged from? Think about that broken relationship. 
Think about their name. Picture their face. Reflect on what happened. You know, Jacob broke almost every relationship he had. I mean, he deceived his blind old father. He stole his brother's blessing. He's broken the relationships with his very own family. But I want you to see that today's passage shows us that reconciliation is possible. God can fix what we have broken. He can reconcile our relationship with him. And for Jacob, it all starts with a humble prayer. A humble prayer. You see, why I think one of the hardest things about reconciliation is the humility it takes to say sorry. Maybe we say it's humility, but actually, let's face it, it feels a bit like humiliation, doesn't it? If I come and say sorry to someone that I've offended, it's, it's, it's really humiliating. And they might go, yeah, you should be sorry. And then I think, well, I shouldn't have done this in the first place at all. It takes humility to come crawling back, and yet at the same time, it's amazing because that's what Jacob does. After a lifetime of lying, cheating, and stealing, Jacob comes crawling back. In chapter 32, he sends messengers to his brother Esau, and look at the humility of what he does. He tells his messengers to bring a peace offering of oxen, donkeys, flocks, and servants. He honors his brother by calling him my Lord Esau and calling himself your servant Jacob. And he comes back after 20 long years. Think about that. Most of us would think too much time has passed. What's to be gained in trying after two long decades? And yet after two long decades of stealing his brother's blessing, Jacob humbly comes home. The messengers return, they tell Jacob, we went to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. 400 men. Just imagine what Jacob must be feeling. He's coming to settle our score. He's coming for payback. And to be honest, I get it. I stole what belonged to him, and now it's time for me to pay the price. But I'm so afraid. And isn't that how, many of, isn't that how we feel when we ask forgiveness from someone we've hurt? We know that we deserve whatever they're going to say, but it doesn't make us any less afraid of that moment. Jacob's life has been ruled by fear, and every time he's been afraid, he's always done exactly the same thing. He's choked and he seized control of that situation and seized control of his life. But this time, look at what he does. Jacob turns fear into faith. He turns fear into faith. He turns to God in humble prayer. I want you to notice three things about his prayer in verses 9 to 12. Three things. Firstly, Jacob appeals to God's promise. He begins by praying to the God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac. He invokes God's promise from chapter 31, go back to your land and to your family and I will cause you to prosper. And he ends his prayer, get this, by reminding God of what God said. Isn't that great? He prays to God, you've said... I'll cause you to prosper and I'll make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. 
Jacob appeals to God's promise. God, you said you'd look after me. Now, please do what you said you'd do. Secondly, Jacob admits his unworthiness. Verse 10, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown to your servant. He doesn't say, oh God, I made an innocent mistake. Or, I tried my best, but my best just wasn't enough. Or, God, I'm sorry, but I meant well. No, I am unworthy. I don't deserve your kindness. I don't deserve what I'm asking of you. You see, friends, before Jacob can admit he is unworthy to Esau, he must admit he is unworthy to God. And thirdly, Jacob asks for help. He asks for God's help. You see, there's something so simple and direct about this prayer in verse 11. Please rescue me from my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. There's something so humbling, isn't there, about being in a position of need, of having to say, I'm afraid. But that's what Jacob does. What a remarkably humble prayer this is. And what a remarkably different Jacob this is. No more lying, no more cheating, no more stealing, only a humble prayer. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your grace I cling. And what a model for how we might pray, friends. What a model for how we should appeal to God's promise. And that means we need to know what he has and hasn't promised. What a model for how we should admit our unworthiness. And that means we need to be humble about our sin. What a model for how we should ask for God's help. And that means we should be honest and humble enough to say, God, I'm afraid. Please help me. What a humble prayer. And it's a prayer paired with action. In verses 13 to 22, Jacob sends more gifts to Esau, and I want you to look at his hope. He keeps sending gift after gift after gift in this hope. I want to appease Esau with the gift that's going ahead of me. After that, I can face him, and perhaps he'll forgive me. Gosh, the saddest word in that sentence is that word, isn't it? Perhaps. There is a sense in which Jacob knows he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. But maybe, just maybe, he might be. Now I want to do something different. I want to skip forward. I want to skip forward to chapter 33. I want to show you what happens after this humble prayer. Because this humble prayer in chapter 33 gives way to a beautiful reconciliation. A beautiful reconciliation. If you've ever uh, come face to face with someone you've hurt, uh, it's a little bit scary, isn't it? You know, I don't deserve to be forgiven. In fact, you might even deserve to feel the pain that you've caused them. Well, now Jacob comes face to face with his brother after 20 long years, and now he's looking at his brother with 400 men standing behind him. And his, Jacob's just terrified. He's bowing to the ground seven times, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me. And then in that moment of fear, Esau starts running towards Jacob. But then, 
we read some of the most beautiful words in all of Genesis. Esau ran to meet him. He hugged him. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Then they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he asked, Who are these with you? Oh, oh, um, these are, these are your nephews. This is Reuben. Simeon's over there. Joseph, now come say hi to your uncle, right? And I, wow. I mean, what, what should have been a terrifying moment of retribution ends as this beautiful moment of reconciliation. I read, it almost reminds me of the parable of the lost son. As the father runs to his son and embraces him in love. I just want you to notice the small details, right? The pathos of this encounter. In verse 5, Jacob comes and he calls himself, your servant. In verse 8, he calls Esau, my Lord. But then in verse 9, Esau calls Jacob, my brother. Not my servant. Not even my enemy my brother. Who would have dreamed or ever foreseen that Esau would respond in such grace? And so Jacob says, I've seen your face. And it's like seeing God's face since you have accepted me. And that says it all, doesn't it? In Esau, Jacob sees the face of God. This this encounter isn't really a picture of Esau forgiving his brother. Friends, this is a picture of God forgiving us. This is a picture of our reconciliation with God. This beautiful reconciliation is a picture of the God who ran to us in the person of Jesus. All the way from heaven to earth, Jesus sprinted down that stairway. He hugged us in excitement. He threw his arms around us in welcome. He kissed us in love. He wept over us in joy. He accepted us in grace. Just like Esau, Jesus forgave our sin and fixed the relationship that we broke. And just like Esau looked upon a man who should have been his servant, but called him my brother. Jesus looks on us who are his enemies and calls us his friends. God looks on us who should have been his enemies and calls us sons and daughters. Jacob said in wistful, almost resigned hope, perhaps Esau will forgive me. Friends, you and I don't ever have to say perhaps. Because we know that in Jesus, God has. He has forgiven us. He will forgive us. He will accept us. Jacob saw God in the face of Esau. Friends, we see God in the face of his son. And Christmas celebrates the very moment that God ran to us in Jesus and embraced us in forgiveness, in acceptance, and in love. Friends, I want you to know that if you're not a Christian, or if you've walked away from the Lord, this beautiful reconciliation shows that you can come home to God as well. You can have that broken relationship fixed. 
You could have lied, cheated, and stolen. You could have deceived your way through life. You could have rejected God at every point and walked away from Him time and time and time again. But in Jesus, God sprinted down that stairway from heaven to fix that relationship with you. He wants to bring you home. And all you have to do is exactly what Jacob did. Appeal to God's promise. God, you said you'd forgive me. Admit your unworthiness. God, I'm sorry for breaking our relationship and for breaking your heart. And ask for God's help. God, please save me, forgive me, and accept me. And if you do those things, if you appeal to his promise, if you admit your unworthiness, if you ask for his help, you'll never have to wonder, perhaps God will forgive me. You can know with absolute confidence he has. No matter how estranged you might be from God, you, friend, can experience this beautiful reconciliation. It can be yours as well. Now, I want to take you back. I want to hit the rewind button and show you something that happened in between these two moments. This strange enigmatic encounter between that humble prayer and that beautiful reconciliation. It almost comes out of nowhere. You could almost look at verses 24 to 31, highlight it, hit the delete button, and it runs perfectly smoothly. Why is this here? Let me take you back. You see, before Jacob came back to Esau, he sent his wife and kids across the Jabbok River ahead of him. Now, that's not because he wants to send them first and see what happens and protect himself, right? No, he, he sends them across the river, but for some reason, he stays on this side of the river. And it's almost as if he can't cross the river until he does one last thing. Look at verse 24. Jacob is all alone. And it almost reminds us of that scene at Bethel all those years ago. Suddenly, a mysterious man appears. He grabs Jacob and wrestles him until daybreak. That word wrestle in Hebrew sounds like the name Jacob. Almost as if to say, this random mysterious man, Jacob's, ja Jacob's Jacob at the Jabbok. That's the whole point of it. The man who wrestled his brother's blessing from him now gets a taste of his own medicine. Now, at this stage, Jacob doesn't know who this man is, and neither do we. I know you're going, it's God, it's God, just wait, right? We're not there yet. That'll happen. At this moment, we still think it's some man. If anything, we might think it's Esau. I mean, just think about it. Jacob's coming back to see his brother. He's repenting of it. I'm sorry. I stole your blessing. I've had this burden me for the last 20 years. And now Esau's like, well, you've stolen my blessing 20 years ago. Now I'm coming to get you, right? Like, so we're probably thinking it's Esau in the middle of the night. Now, whether or not it is, we know at least it's a man. You see, but this man, whoever he is, he can't seem to beat Jacob. And just think about it. He is up against a professional heel grabber from birth. Jacob has been wrestling people from the womb. If anyone knows how to grapple, it's this guy. He's grappled with Esau, grappled with Isaac, grappled with Laban. There's no better fighter than him. It's as if Jacob then submits this man with an armbar and a guillotine, right? This man who is overpowered by Jacob has nothing that he can do. And yet... He's also powerful enough to dislocate Jacob's hip with a single touch. 
No, 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 no. This man seems overpowered, but he's more powerful than you might think. Jacob refuses to let the man go. And just like he's done his whole life, he demands a blessing. It's as if, you know, you're on the mats, someone grapples you, gets you in a Peruvian necktie, and it's like, you know, give me your money, right? And what does the man ask? What is your name? Jacob, he replies. And now, it's only now we realize, oh, this is God. Imagine that moment you realize you've been grappling with someone and it's God. You say, oh, I'm so sorry, right? (laughs) And God gives Jacob a new name, Israel. Because you've struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob then names the place Peniel, for I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. And we go, wasn't that lovely? What in the world does that mean? What's going on here? I mean, this has to be one of the strangest, most enigmatic encounters in all of Genesis, and it's not easy to understand. Let me tell you the big risk. I think the big risk is what I said before, is that we know that it's God. So we read God back into verse 24, and we assume that the whole time Jacob knew he was wrestling with God from the beginning. But he didn't. As far as Jacob knew, he was grappling with a man like he's been his whole life. I mean, Jacob's decision to wrestle this man is not good, is it? In fact, since when has it ever been good for Jacob to wrestle for a blessing like he did with his brother? No, 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 no. Verses 24 to 26 show us the same old Jacob, that heel-grabbing deceiver. But verse 24 is the moment of truth. The man asks, what is your name? And it's as if this moment is Jacob's second chance to give the answer that he should have given when his father asked that same question 20 years ago. Remember, what is your name? I am Esau. No, you're not. But now the boy comes clean. I'm Jacob. Yes, I'm that heel-grabbing deceiver. I'm the liar. I'm the cheat. I'm the thief. Or as Jacob said to his brother, I am unworthy. And it's only after this moment, only after the humbling of Jacob that we realize it's been God he's fighting all along. And not just here his whole life. Your whole life you've been struggling with God and with men. But in spite of his striving, in spite of his struggle, God still blesses him. Just like Esau, he spares Jacob's life and he gives Jacob a new name, which means striving with God. Isn't that the story of Jacob's life? Isn't that the story of Israel's life as a nation? In Hosea 12, God says of the nation Israel in the womb, he grasped his brother's heel, and as an adult, he wrestled with God. You see, Israel, it's not a good name. Sorry, mate, right? It's not a good name. It's a descriptor of their life. These are a wretched people. These are a people who just grab at people's heels deceive whoever they get, and fight over and over and over again with God. Israel is a name that describes the life of God's people in a painful honesty, the life of constantly fighting with a God who blesses us and a God who spares us. 
You see, the point of this encounter is not that we should strive with God. It's that in our struggle with God, He will give us His grace and He will spare our life, just like Esau did for Jacob. It's as if this encounter is a mini parable of Jacob's life of fighting with God, a life that moves from striving to submission. And the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau on either side of this encounter is but a human picture of this central, deeper reconciliation. The true reconciliation that all of us need is with God. Jacob has been wrestling with his brother his whole life. But the truth is, all along, he's been wrestling with God. Jacob is forgiven by his brother, but in fact, he's been forgiven by God. All that is true of the humble prayer and all that is true of that beautiful reconciliation is only possible because in our struggle with God, he gives us his grace and he spares our life. And so we arrive at the end of this and ask, what does this all mean for you and me? What does this all mean for you and me? Firstly, your real fight is actually with God. Your real fight's actually with God. Have you ever realized that? I've met people who seem to be constantly fighting, constantly fighting with others. Sure, there's the obvious type, the people, the conflict-prone people, the person who leaves a wreckage of broken relationships in their wake. Yes, there's that. But I suspect that there's a lot more of the rest of us. People who look calm on the outside, but on the inside, constantly fighting with others. Fighting with our spouse, fighting with our children, fighting with our friends, fighting with others at church. We might not fight to them, but inside we're just frustrated, bitter at how others behave resentful at how others live, frustrated by what others have and don't have. And it's easy, isn't it, to blame everyone, to blame our friends, blame our workplace, blame our culture, blame our church. It's always someone else's fault that our life is the way that it is. That was Jacob's life, a life of constant struggle against others, a life of fighting with others to get by or fighting with others to get ahead. But verse 28 tells us that just like Jacob, our real fight is actually with God. Jacob's been struggling with Isaac, with Esau, with Laban, but all along it's been God he's struggling with. And our dissatisfaction in life does not stem from our struggle with other people. Our dissatisfaction in life stems from our struggle with the Lord. We're frustrated, or so we think, that other people won't give us what we want. We're really frustrated that God won't give us what we want. We wrestle with others over the blessing that they have, and we don't. But we're really wrestling with God over the blessings that, for some reason, He gives them, but He won't give us. We need to recognize that in all our sin, all our struggling, and all our striving, it is fundamentally a Godward-oriented reality. We need to bring, as it were, the fight to God. But we also need to realize that God will prevail in grace. He will win. You see, the name Israel, Israel's learning a lot back there right now, the name Israel can mean striving with God. 
But in reality, there is a better meaning of the name Israel. It's that God is striving and that God will prevail. It means that God will win. You see, in the end, in all our struggles with God, let me burst your bubble right now. You can't win. He will. He is the God who dislocated Jacob's hip with a single touch. Yep, I get it. Verse 28 says, Your name will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. But a better translation might be this. You have struggled with God and with men you have prevailed. But not with him. You might be like Jacob, the professional heel-grabbing wrestler. You might have beat everyone in your life. You might pride yourself on the fact that you're better than other people. That when it comes to getting what you want, you can always get your outcome. In a conflict, in a fight, you know, there's no one better than you. Let me tell you this, when you're up against God on the mats, you cannot win. Because in the end, God prevails over Jacob, doesn't he? He gives him a limp the rest of his life. Now, if you're like me, which I hope you're not, you might not like the idea that God always wins. You might accept it. You might believe it, but you might not like it. It's easy to be resentful at God's sovereignty, isn't it? To be bitter at a begrudging submission to the God who always prevails. But I want you to see how he prevails. He prevails in grace. Do you you see? In spite of Jacob's struggle, striving, and sin, God doesn't punish him. God blesses him. God spares his life. God forgives him. God reconciles him not only with his brother, but also with God himself. God gives Jacob the very blessing he's been fighting for his whole life. You see, I think some of us are so afraid. Well, some of us fight against God because we're afraid that God might win. And if he wins, we're afraid at what he might do with our life. It's hard for us to imagine that God's blessings could ever be better than the life we see for ourselves. But can you see, friends, that we don't have to be afraid that God will win? Because we know He wins, and we know exactly what He'll do. He'll pour out His blessings on us in Jesus. So, friends, please stop your striving. Stop struggling. Stop fighting with God. Yes, God will win. God will prevail. But he'll prevail in grace. So I want to end with this. For some of us, in some cases, God may bless you with a limp. God may bless you with a limp. Some of us, um, let me just speak on behalf of some of the men here. I think some of us guys here at church spoil for a fight. We love to fight with her. We love, the, we love to fight with God. Because it sounds a bit twisted, but just like anger as an emotion, fighting gives us a sense of control. It's almost cathartic to wrestle with God, isn't it? But if Jacob's life shows us anything, it's not cathartic, it's stupid. And God wants to tell you right now, if you're fighting with God, stop it. Humble yourself under the mercies of God. 
humble yourself under the grace that he gives. But I can't. In fact, if you ask me, I know my heart well enough to know that I won't. I hear that, you know, come to church on Sunday, stop fighting with God. Okay, that's not going to work. I just won't. I like the fight. I like to be in control of my own life. If you're like me, sometimes I find it all too hard to submit to God's grace. So God may bless some of us with a limp, just like he did for Jacob. A daily weakness to keep us limping through life, but leaning on him. Depression. Childlessness, illness, unwanted singleness, some form of inadequacy or insecurity, chronic pain, or maybe the need to care for someone we love who has one of these weaknesses, and so it becomes ours. Friends, I know it's hard, and I don't say this lightly, because I can't and would never presume to know your pain or what it is that you walk with. But can I encourage you that as hard and as painful as it is, don't resent the limp. Don't resent the limp. It's better to struggle through life than to struggle against God. It's better to struggle through life in submission to God. It is better to limp to heaven than to sprint to hell. It is appointed for some of us to walk through life with a limp. So that just like Jacob and Paul, we might say, his grace is sufficient for me. For his power is perfected in weakness. Friends, can you see God prevails in grace? And his grace is all we will ever need. Do not resent your limp. No, in fact, Paul says rejoice in it. For it may be God's gift to keep us in submission to his grace. The point of this passage, contrary to what most of us might think, is not be like Jacob in his struggle against God. That's the opposite of everything we've seen in Genesis. No, friends, the point of this passage is this. Don't be like Jacob in his struggle against God. Be like him in his submission to God. And when we submit to the Lord Jesus, we will discover that he will always prevail. He will prevail in grace. He will always forgive our sins and he promises to fix our relationship with him. And no matter how broken and far we might be from God, he will give us more grace day after day after day. Let me pray. God, we know that we are too much like Jacob. We spoil for the fight. We wrestle with others. We scrimp and strive and struggle and fight to survive in this world, thinking, God, that it all depends on us and that if we don't fight with others for survival, no one else will fight for us. God, forgive us for such foolishness and help us see, God, that actually we have the God who fights, the God who wins, the God who prevails, the God who prevails in grace. And so, God, for those of us here who resent the fact that you will always win. Give us the humility to submit to your power, but actually give us the humility to submit to your grace, knowing that if we yield ourselves to you, 
we will always find in you the God who gives more grace when the burdens grow greater, the God who gives more strength when our labours increase. To added afflictions, you addeth your mercy. To multiply trials, you multiply your peace. We pray these things for the sake of Jesus, our Lord, our Saviour and our Defender. Amen.